You are listening to Fika with Vicky on United Public Radio, 107.7 and 105.3 from New Orleans. Hi. Hello, everyone. <laughs> and welcome to Fika. Our guest today is Rhett Gervais. He's a science fiction and fantasy author, having written the very gritty dystopian Children of the Spear, a fantasy based on ancient Rome called The Last Witch of Rome. And he even has a new series coming out, The Grace Harbor Mysteries. Um, he'll tell us more about that later. Rhett cut his storytelling teeth as a dungeon master in Dungeons and, Game and Dragons gaming sessions. And I believe that this is why his world building is so concrete. There is a foundation. There are boundaries. So even though it may become fantastical, those limits allow us to, to believe. And they're believable. Make them believable. I discovered Rhett in a Facebook promotional ad <laughs> where the artwork on his big, big book chosen was so incredible that it forced me to break something we're always told, never to judge a book by its cover. <laughs> so I did, and I <laughs> ordered it. And all this time later, I'm still enjoying his books. Um, I'm still reading them. And... He's back for a second Fika. So welcome to Fika, Rhett. Thank you so much, Vicky. How are you doing? I'm doing good. And yourself? Great, great. Uh, keeping busy, working hard, <laughs> lots of different writing to do, uh, trying to get it all done. And that's the hardest part is actually doing all the writing you have to do. Um, you know, we writers have a million ideas and the time to only do a couple. So uh, I do my best to, to try to actually get the books done because people are harassing me to publish books um yes i <laughs> it is so number one in that statement it is work and you know it's not like you can just go off somewhere and just go boom 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 i mean it's work you have to sit there day in day out and make those words flow so sometimes it goes good and sometimes it goes not so good right exactly so you know, we do have to, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I, I'm half and half. I'm a bit of a pantser and a bit of a plotter, meaning I do some plotting, but a lot of it is by the seat of my pants. You know, I have an idea of where the story's going, what's going to happen. I know who the characters are, what their motivation is, you know, and ultimately where I want them to end up. But a lot of the stuff in, in the middle, you know, uh, it, it is by the seat of my pants, it comes up as I'm writing it. And there are days where I can write 3,000 words and it comes all nice and easy. And there are days I suffer to write 250 words. So it can be quite interesting uh, trying to put it all together. So I'm going to mess around with my um, plotting here <laughs> for this show and go <laughs> down the list. Um, I promised myself that I would never... Um, push writers anymore and <laughs> for my next book okay but i do have to ask um do you have a an idea of when okay. number four is 
Okay, so the last witch of Rome, which is the story about Vesper, who is a an African witch, uh, who uh, is a slave during the era of Commodus in ancient Rome. Uh, that series, we've got four great books out, uh, a prequel no novella, and three main books in the series. Uh, we have a fourth and a fifth book that will be coming out hopefully before the middle of the year. I had hoped to be finished. Book four, uh, Invictus. And I had hoped well, to be finished. I, I, My goal when I started it was uh, having it ready for Black History Month, and I have utterly failed at that. <laughs> I have pulled a George R.R. R. Martin, and I've just kept writing and writing. And what has ended up happening is I now have a fourth and a fifth book as opposed to just a fourth. But editing all of that into a coherent, a coherent narrative can be quite difficult sometimes. So I will have, hopefully, um, I'm hoping by mid-April, I will have fully edited out book four. Uh, and actually by June, you'll also have a book five. I also have enough material for a another prequel book in that series, which will be about uh, one of the more interesting character, Lilith, who is uh, Vesper's mother. So there's a lot of material that I need to sort of build out from. Getting off on her own, Lilith. Yes. Like, is she going to develop her own series? Now, will yeah. the the Last Witch of Rome series continue, or I have I. I, I really do see five or six books total in that series. Um, how because it, because it is historical fantasy, and I do follow the timeline of the reign of Emperor Commodus, which is about a twenty-year period of time—not uh, a twenty-year period, about a ten to fifteen-year period of time. Like eventually, Commodus does die historically, and I would like to follow along with historically how and why he dies uh, in the series. That was so always the goal. The villain um, is gone. And yes. They, 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 superhero-wise. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, the, the thing I, I hate in TVs and books and movies is that, you know, the main villain has been dead and they just keep going and they make up something completely new. And it's, you know, I don't think it's fair to the reader. You know, there's nothing more satisfying as a reader to actually have a beginning, a middle and an end and have that evolution of a character. And, you know, hopefully, you know, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but have that character go off into the sunset, live happily ever after. You know, so you at least you, you have that satisfaction. Obviously, one of the great things about serial writing is that you do develop a lot of different characters over the course of five or six books. And you can keep that world going, but with different characters. And that's probably what, what is going to happen. Uh, as I've gone through creating this world, I've realized that Lilith does have a story to tell also. I think that's where the, the series may continue, or I just may spin it off as a completely new series with her as the protagonist. So that's where we're going with The Last Witch of Rome. Yeah, um, so we can expect two to three more books. And then yes. a prequel for the Lilith. Series. Yes. Now, At the very I, least that. no, I'm going to, I was going to say Lilith, Lilith, for obvious reasons, is not one of my favorite characters. But <laughs> I could see 
how there's a lot of space there between, you know, there's a lot of space there for a story to be created for her. Like, I can see that. Like, maybe making her one of my favorite characters? I don't know. Well, you know, um, <laughs> just because she does, does bad things doesn't mean she's not a good person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or was a good person. Or Well, see, this is the thing that a lot of people don't understand, though. I don't have, like, I, I as a reader, what do you think of this? Right? I don't have to like the main character to like a book or series. Say, for example, from television, you know, Mad Men or, you know, <laughs> they were, he was not a nice guy, right? But was that was nice. Don Draper was not a nice guy. <laughs> but um, that, that was a fantastically written series. Yes. So uh, always, you know, we have to remember, um, you don't always have to like the main character. You just have to find them interesting. That's there right. are some pretty despicable characters out there that have been character leads and you love to hate them or, you know, you love to see them suffer. And I think that uh, making characters too perfect or flawless or too likable even, you know, can be a detriment to the reader because, you know, we're all secretly quite flawed, you know, and we like to see ourselves a little bit in the protagonist. So whatever flaws we have that are reflected in the protagonist can make it for an interesting read and often a read you can't put down, right? Because you can relate. And and why they got to be the way they are. They might have started off like the nicest person, but, um, you know, I feel like that some days as I get older. <laughs> I'm not sure I would be the nicest character. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we all start... But, but hang on a second, you know, we all start off, uh, we all start off wanting to do the best we can. However, circumstances force us sometimes to make choices we may not necessarily be proud of. And, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we can't always be the nice person because those people tend to get walked all over or taken advantage of. So just because you stand up for yourself or you speak sternly, right, I think a great example uh, of that is, you know, Sheldon Cooper and the Big Bang Theory. You know, Sheldon is a good person. He just speaks very bluntly, right? He says what he thinks and he says what he feels. And uh, I admire the character for that. Oh, I love, I love Sheldon. He's, he's, yeah, no, I, and I. Well, I he's can, not a nice guy. No, no, but I agree with him a lot. <laughs> so I don't know what that says about me, but no, he's he's a fabulous character. Sheldon is a fabulous character, and once again, developed along the line of the story. Yes. So, which brings me, you said you're part pantser and part plotter. Yes. So, you when you say you plan ahead, did you? Well, you said you know that Commodus only reigned for this many years. Yes, and that he yes. died. So you knew this. It's, you, it's not a surprise. It, it happened 2,000 years ago. It's <laughs> not a spoiler. No, there's no it's surprise. There's no but spoilers there. Based on history, you know, we'll, we'll do that while we're watching a show, right? Or, you know, yes. did this really happen? It's, and <laughs> I think, I think the, the, the more of the surprise to the reader is how it happens and why it happens. Um, I think the, the evolution of the characters of, of Vesper, um, and of course, of Narcissus, who is her love interest in the series, how these two characters evolve and become the people who they are by the end um, really will be the surprise and the telling aspect of it. Um, for those people who haven't read the series, you know, uh, one of the core elements 
that we bring in is this notion of connection between people from very different, you know, far reaching parts of the globe. You know, Narcissus is ultimately a Celt, you know, from from the north and, and Vesper is African from, you know, the continent of Africa. But yet these two people make this this wonderful connection uh, and they drive and change one another. And this is how things go in the real world. You know, we we meet very different people from different parts of the world and we form these connections that, you know, we never knew we expected or weren't even looking for. And so this is one of the, 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 the topics and the trends that come up a lot in this series is that we find these connections we're never really looking for, never really expecting, but they produce some pretty surprising results. I was actually thinking about that when I was, I was recently um, reading the third actual book, like, oh, okay. the, 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 and, and I was thinking about the fact that it's sort of, the goal is more important than the individuals. Yes. That these are very sacrificing individuals, noble per se. And I find that that tends to go, um, that tends to go along I, I just think that's a part of the way you think, Rhett. <laughs> you know, because we all put those little lessons in there, right? And I'm like, absolutely. okay, so it's the, but no, it does. And that falls along lines. We don't think about people traveling in ancient times like that. Like we, we have we have this idea that that, you know, everybody was in a certain place. But <clears throat> with Rome, there was everybody from every corner of Africa. And Rome, and Rome. Rome was New York, Rome was London, you know, Rome was Paris. Everyone went there, right? This is the center of commerce in the world at the time. And people will travel vast distances and not see their families for years and months at a time to do business, to experience something new. And you had people, uh, I'd say it, but the Romans conquered the, most of the known world. And that included most of Northern Africa, almost all of Europe. Uh, parts of Asia, you know, they were into, uh, they had control over Egypt, the Nile. This was a vast empire. So what ends up happening is you have this wonderful cosmopolitan melting pot, right, of all these interesting cultures and what the Romans did and why they were so successful in um, actually expanding their empire and maintaining peace throughout that expanded empire is they actually franchised being Roman. So they franchised the notion of the centurion and their army and governors and things like that. And when they came and they conquered you, they also established commerce and peace, right? Giving you a quality of life that probably did not. Is, <laughs> Still no, not liking it. It's, 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 it's true. It's true. They taught so, us a lot of bad habits, those Romans. <laughs> hey, the first fast food restaurants were Roman. You know? <laughs> and, 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 and how we will. Okay, I want you, because obviously, we discussed this before, you did a lot of research before doing yes. a fantasy novel. And people don't think about that. They think you're doing fantasy, just which I want to get to. But Brian has an interesting question, so sure. we'll bring it up here. You have a rich, intricate series. How do you keep track of events, places, and people? Do you use timeline software or pen and paper? Um, so I have a, a series Bible right? Um, 
almost like character sheets from Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, that was right. gonna ask that exactly because I said he has character. Okay, Ryan, just give me a second here. I just have to ask him this: Have you ever rolled a dice? <laughs> in your writing have you ever no i have not okay, but it may be a good idea it's that when you get stuck just you know roll their power is <laughs> well, well but, um, here's the thing uh i have um one of my favorite um books about writing is called on writing it's by stephen king and one of his suggestions is every time anytime you ever get stuck kill somebody <laughs> <laughs> and that's what, <laughs> and that's what I yes he, so uh there was a famous he, must get stuck a lot. <laughs> he does, <laughs> he does. <laughs> so uh, his most famous application of that was in the stand where he ended up like you know completely stuck not sure what he wanted to do and so he just blew people up and while I don't go to that extreme um you know sometimes shaking the story up and changing the the, the events and the narratives uh, definitely beyond the character's control can drive a story forward. So if you keep a story static and you try to keep in the same, this is why you cannot plot all the way. You do have to do some pantsing is it allows uh, time for the characters to express themselves and do the crazy things that human beings do. You know, uh, I don't consider to have created these characters. I consider that I express for them. Right. So, once the ideas uh, that they've been put in the world of these characters exist, uh, there are times where they do things that I'm even surprised at. You know, that didn't come from me. It's because I know who this character is. I know how they think and how they behave. And sometimes they do things that you don't expect. But as long as it keeps in their personality, I let it happen. So do you keep those character sheets on paper with pen or do you use a program? No, I, I, I have it on my, I have um, in Google Docs, I have an entire biography for each character, things they've done, um, you know, interesting elements of their personality. There are quirks. There are also like, um, you know, deeper thoughts, you know, stuff that's not necessarily expressed on the paper, but they're the characters, deeper thoughts, their dreams, their hopes. And um, sometimes it comes through in the story, but a lot of the time it expresses in their actions and why they do certain things, right? So yes, I have character sheets. I guess that's the best way of doing it. <laughs> I knew you would. I knew you would. Okay. Does that answer your question, Brian? You can always, you can always, if you need more, let us know. Um, <clears throat> so yes, character sheets, Dungeons and Dragons. And I am embarrassed. I'm, I'm wondering if that is why your writing is so so formed because you're used to having to defend it. Like if you're playing a game and you come up with something that wipes people out, they're going to be well, a little argumentative about it, right? Exactly. So whenever you have, uh, when you're, whenever you're, especially as a dungeon master, back in the day, right? <laughs> you have to remember you're dealing usually with people who are very intelligent, creative, right? So if you present them with a scenario, right? If you want to actually have it be successful, there have to be rules. There has to be a way for them to, um, how do I put this? It's important that you set a playing field and let people play, but there must be boundaries also, right? Um, if you're a fighter with a sword, right? you're not going to suddenly have magic, right? Exactly. If you, 
if you only know how to use magic and someone attacks you with a sword, well, you're not going to be able to fight them with the sword. You have to figure it out, right? So, you know, as an example, Vesper uses magic to help her fight, but she's never going to be as strong or as capable as Narcissus, who's a natural fighter. He's big, he's strong. He can beat people with his bare hands and does it very well. So establishing early on what the characters can do, making sure that they do have limitations, uh, makes it feel grounded, makes it feel realistic. You know, if all of a sudden characters can do something completely out of character that they didn't learn somehow in the story, then your reader's not going to follow along with you. You're going to lose your reader because they're going to say, well, that's impossible. Now, that doesn't make any sense. So once you've established the rules, you've got to follow them. So I was right. And Vicky was right. <laughs> Vicky was that right. Is, that, I have to hear that once in a while. Just too bad. It's, it's <laughs> you know, so it's like I, play, it? I play a game here, okay? Like I throw an idea and it's like, yes, that was because I can almost see that. And I am so aware of that. It drives me crazy in fantasies where it's just like, woo. And it's like, no, That's, that doesn't work. <laughs> As as some as someone who's a writer, uh, almost all writers start off as people who love the genre that they're writing in, right? If you are a mystery writer or if you're a science fiction writer, there's a good chance you loved books about those things. And one of the things that always irritated me in fantasy is when they completely broke the rules. You know, all of a sudden at the last minute, there's some ridiculous uh, Deus Ex Machina that explains the whole thing. Well, that's not really fair to the reader, right? The reader wants the character to figure it out, come up with something creative, but based on the, the limitations that you've placed on the character. And, and that makes it far more satisfying. And sometimes characters lose. You know, sometimes they get their ass kicked. And that's okay to happen too. Someone else can come in and save them. Uh, there can be extenuating circumstances. And that's okay too. That will drive the story forward. And, and, and you know, uh, especially in the in the first two books, Vesper gets her butt kicked a lot. You know, uh, these characters don't win. They're, you know, Commodus is, is the emperor of Rome. He has an enormous amount of power. And they they do the smart thing is they turn tail and they run at times because they don't really have a choice. Okay, so, it's and, yeah, and it's realistic. So people tend to enjoy that. And they, they, they emulate it with it too. You know, most of us in our day-to-day -day lives don't have supreme power. We can't just wave our hand and make our problems go away. We have to deal with them. And I think people see that. So while we're on this track, I'm going to go ahead to the battle scenes. Now, yes. while reading the battle scenes, I was like, okay, I'm visualizing this. But writing it, remembering who left whose knife and whom, <laughs> and, and you know who's lost their axe and all of this has got to be like very head spinning um well um i i cheat a little bit um because i don't while my battle scenes are um are good um they i, I tend to limit the number of people fighting all at once that's one thing that does help me. Um, <laughs> you cheat! No, no, no. Yes. No. <laughs> and, and two, um, I, I like I like fight scenes, you know. And um, I have seen so many movies where you know people are fighting, 
And it's very easy for me to visualize how I want a fight to go, right? So it ends up being, uh, you see it all in your mind and you see the flow. And the hardest thing is often putting it into words, right? Because you don't want to, um, the key to writing good fight scenes is your, your, your words have to be short and quick and violent, right? So you need to use- <laughs> Because no, it's violent. <laughs> yes, you need to use words that show that. You need to use words to show violence. Word, so you're, because you're trying to, to show and not tell the action, you can describe it, but only to a limited way. The other thing is when you're actually committing violence, you're never really doing anything as fancy as is shown in film and television. Uh, and even in some books, this whole idea that people are going to be pirouetting and dancing and, you know, <laughs> flipping. You're not buying it? <laughs> no, no one believes that. No one believes that. No, because if you just you, want to stay alive. Exactly. If you've actually ever seen um, real gladiators fight, like I, it, it's, it's brutal, short, and quick. The same thing goes, go look at fencing matches, right? Uh, short, brutal, quick. Those those pokes to the chest happen very quickly. And the same thing goes for any sort of, you know, like kendo, right? If you've ever seen kendo, uh, bushido, you know, Japanese-style fighting with the katanas, they are so fast and quick, right? So, yes, you can try to extend fight scenes and, you know, add depth and dimension, but it is it needs to be short, quick, and violent. That's a <laughs> sure, and yeah, I can tell because I can. They're very visual, like which sounds weird when you're reading them, but I find myself visualizing them. So yeah, that works. Like for me, but, anyways. You know, uh, there is. Uh, I, I very rarely don't finish a book. Uh, I love to read, and I can accept all sorts of things. There was one book that I literally in the middle of it, when he started the first description of the first fight scene, I took the book, I closed it and I put it aside because instead of describing the battle, like creating a visual element for the battle, he wrote the sounds, right? And you know, anyone who's read a lot of fantasy knows exactly who I'm talking about. He wrote the sounds and he wrote a, and he told, told you what was happening. He didn't create a visual medium for you and it just didn't work, right? So anything that you're going to do in writing, first of all, you have to show uh, and show it nicely and show it in a way that people can understand it and do it quickly. There are, uh, I know personally, many, many people, if a fight scene is too long, they'll skip over it to get back to the conversation, the drama. Oh, I, yeah, yes. I mean, this is my thing about world building. I love Tokian. I love the world that he mm -hmm. built. But I'm not saying I ever finished reading that third book or that I don't go ahead 10 pages and then get frustrated that I've lost <laughs> some action because it took 10 pages to describe a mountain. So, yes, love, love the man, love the aesthetic, love the ideas. Just too much can be too much. Yes. And so, listen, as always, styles change over time. Um, but I think there's a happy medium of, of being able to describe something. And I personally feel that your imagination needs to fill in the gaps, right? Um, obviously, I'm not just going to say there's a room, right? 
but you can describe parts of the room and let the person's imagination, the reader's imagination fill in the gaps. You can describe the tree, right? And let the reader's imagination fill in the gaps. So um, if you, and this is always a fun experiment, right? Uh, next time you have a book club or a friend uh, over and you're talking about a book, pick one of the favorite characters you have in a book, right? And ask them what that character looks like. And you're both going to come up with completely different descriptions. And that's a general idea. That's when you know that, you know, the author has given you room to imagine in a story. And I think that's super important. That's also how we become far more engaged is um, because they've left enough room for you to create part of the story yourself. Uh, yeah, no, I agree entirely because your experiences, the, the writer loses control of the book once the reader picks it up. Yes. Because their experiences are going to interpret things and what is happening in the book. I can spend hours imagining what narcissists look like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's wrong. That That's wrong. That's wrong on so many different levels. <laughs> And I know, and David is watching this, so, you know, I had to, I had to go out there. Um, I believe he's listening right now. So I better not look at the comments. It's not my, not my fault. It's not, my fault. <laughs> it's not your fault. <laughs> it's bad. Okay. Um, I told you, I, 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 maybe I identify with Lilith too much. <laughs> <laughs> or Corella DeVille or whoever. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Okay, so we and we established that you didn't just go willy nilly. I'm writing a fantasy. I just can write whatever I wanted. You research, and it's obvious. Yes, ancient Rome, and you knew when these things were happening. Okay, so I did talk about how you created most of this myth yourself. Like there is yes. no Usse or whatever. But I did realize because I'm into that and I like to research that stuff that there is a traditional African god mentioned. Olodumare? Olodumare, yes. Olodumare, sorry. Right, so it's okay. <laughs> it's very hard to pronounce uh, a lot of these uh, names. So um, the, uh, the the myth of the Orishai, right, uh, which is uh, Olodumare created the world. He's the creator god, right? And at his side sits uh, on his left and his right are his two uh, are his two, um, how do you put it, uh, like sub-gods, like Oluren and, uh, and Olurer. And so it's, it's really funny when you look at these, uh, these ancient African religions, some of which are, are like the Yoruba myth, the Orishan myth, is almost 10,000 years old. It predates Christianity by quite a bit. Uh, it predates the pagan religions by quite a bit also. And uh, unlike... The Romans, they had a, a monolithic religion, uh, you know, a single deity. And it is, in far as, as far as I'm concerned, it's pretty much a precursor to Christianity uh, of the, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the more you research it, you actually see the, the correlation between this ancient African belief and the Christianity that we know today. Uh, you also see the evolution of it and how... Um, you had gods like uh, Ogun, who was the, the god of fire and, and metalsmith, right? And you can see correlations in Hephaestus from Greek mythology. Uh, you have uh, Eshu, who is uh, 
the, the god of mischief and speed. And you can see, you know, correlations with Hermes and things like that. So, you know, nothing is, is original. It, it's all um, precursors, meaning that probably... Oh, yeah, everything happened, builds. Yeah. It Someone builds. always steals something from somebody else. Yeah, yes. But, and, and, yeah. But, yeah, so a, a lot of these ancient religions, um, you know, form the basis of... Uh, Christianity that formed the basis of the Greek pantheon. Uh, it's all laid out there because these, as I said, they all predate, you know, the religions that follow them by many, many thousands of years. And you mentioned Eshu in the book as well, don't you? Yes, yes. Eshu, yes. Yeah, Eshu's a fun character. Um, so. he, he's, a, um, he's the equivalent of, uh, you know, a god of mischief. You know, he, he likes making trouble. Uh, but he still loves humanity, and he's also the messenger uh, of Elagimer. So, you know, he combines the portfolio of a couple of different gods, and, um, you know, he, he definitely has an interest in humanity, and he takes an interest in Vesper as well, which makes him quite fun to write, you know, um, because he enjoys making fun of humans. Um, they're his toys? Amusement? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, 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 I put it more along the lines of uh, a parent enjoying to make fun of their kids, you know. Oh, <laughs> I know. Exactly. I went too far. <laughs> At least I'm not. I'm just bugging my husband. I'm not making fun of my children. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, my wife and I, we make fun of our daughter all the time in a good way. And, you know, no, no, there's... In, fun, in fun, in fun. I get it. It's in, not, in well, fun. everything we're doing is in, in fun. So. Yes. You took some things from um, folklore, myths, you know, ancient religions, and some things you like. Uh, yes. So, like Token, I'm not going to compare myself to Token. I take that back. Oh. So, <laughs> Talk about narcissists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It was a name, people. I wasn't. Okay, we're going to stop yes. now, Rick. Get serious. No, okay, so uh, if you look, Token, uh, because it wasn't there right? Token decided to take all the different European myths and put it together in a cohesive narrative for Europeans, right? And, and this is where the notion of elves and fairies and all these things come from. They're all different creations. And he put it all together and he created this wonderful, uh, amazing world. And I was like, well, no one's really done that for Africa. You know, we have, you know, uh, West African voodoo uh, you know, we have uh, uh, Egyptian, you know, hieroglyphs and all these things. We have uh, the Orishai from the Yoruba and all of these different myths, you know, go off in different directions. And I think one of my goals with this story was to sort of put it all together into a cohesive fantasy, right? So that it is different from European fantasy. Not that there's anything wrong with European fantasy. No, but it, is a, it gives us something different to play with and it, allows me to be original in my in my creation, my writing. And to recreate what was. I think this yes. is a time I've been doing this in a lot of different things. And I have a girl coming from um, that's working with the Netherlands and stuff. The recreation of what was so that we can all understand where we came from. Uh, and, absolutely. I think I think that's an important thing, and because there is very little out. I mean, I think I think this is a this is a noble thing that you are doing. 
<laughs> I mean that seriously. It's just hard to say it to you seriously. Okay. No, yeah. no, no. It, it's, it, it's, listen, I think there is um, a, a deep culture and history and myth there that we can explore. You know, uh, speaking of gaming, I played um, Shadowrun, right, when I was much younger, right? And one of the tenets of Shadowrun is that uh, there's a lot of uh, Native American myth, legend, and lore that's built into that of nature spirits and city spirits and the spirits of man and the spirits of nature. And I, I learned far more than I ever imagined playing a game, right? I learned about Native American culture, their beliefs, their history, and I found it fascinating. And I, I was made a better person for it. You know, I would have never, ever, ever looked this stuff up on my own. And I think the potential here is the same right, to put African myth and legend and lore into a way that, you know, people find fascinating and interesting and entertaining. And, you know, at the end, you're learning, you know, you're learning something about different cultures, and you're not even, you know, wanting to learn, but you enjoy it. So I, I think that's a great thing to do. And, and, and reading and, and, and storytelling is humanity's way of teaching one another. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think that's why it is a beautiful thing. And I think what you're saying is, I mean, all interests are, are based on that. I mean, my, my kid got interested in, um, you know, ancient society because of Hercules and Xena, right? And, yeah. and the ancient world. And, and we do that. It is the fun that comes before the obsession. <laughs> you know, and and and, yes. and the idea that we could spend a lot of time doing that and and where there isn't a lot of open um communication on something it has to start somewhere right because Absolutely. you know it, it, it comes and i'm sure there are you know there are many people doing that in many ways all over the place but uh i'm i've i've been very interested in it um for a while now so this is so and, and what did did you use resources while you were like learning about this god or whatever? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it's easier today than it would have been, say, even twenty years ago to you know get information. There are um, you know people who've written interesting papers on uh, the pantheon of the Urashai, about uh, Um The Yuba religion um, is actually uh, pretty interesting. Uh, they have the, the notion of potential energy, which is very scientific for a culture that, you know, um, doesn't seem to be very scientific. But a lot of the principles sound very scientific of potential energy and, and of energy changing form and shape. So, you know, there's a very good chance that some of these cultures were onto things that, you know, we eventually turn into actual science. So, um, but yes, the internet is a wonderful place and you can go down lots of rabbit holes <laughs> at two in the morning <laughs> and find As writers find... tend to instead of writing, right? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And so, yeah, doing, uh, re but researching it, uh, you know, I always had a fascination with ancient Rome and being able to add some, some distinct flavor to it and something interesting to it was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, quite frankly, the, the, even myself, right, when I started this, um, <clears throat> I believed in the porcelain statue myth, right, that Rome was all white and uh, the statues, the porcelain statues were all white. But it turns out that 
most of the color has worn off and flaked away from all the statues. And the statues themselves were once very colorful and, you know, having uh, all different shades and they were a, a glorious rainbow of colors. And so this is the, the, the thing about history. When we actually dig deeper, we find out some pretty interesting things. And I've learned about the cosmopolitan nation, nature of that empire. And it's just made it a more interesting place for me. So, no, no. So we're spending all our time on <laughs> this fascinating <laughs> stuff. But you have to move on. So in summary, I'm going to say in the next section, I will behave better. Um, and, then, <laughs> and also that, so there are four books in total so far. Yes. In, in the prequel. And then Apprentice, Gladiatrix, and... Imperator. And, yes, okay. And, and now, Invictus, Invictus is on the way. Soon. Yes. Very soon Invictus is coming. And and so there and then after that five. And then yes. we have another entire series to look forward. There may be a six, we, do. we don't know yet because I'm not sure. Cool. It depends on how much I, I, I can actually I, I as I said, I don't want to um extend the series beyond its natural story progression. No, when, I no, I, I agree with you entirely. I'm not whether book series or television series, people let things go too long because it's making money. Yes. Right? Doesn't care about money. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think if, if you do something you love, the money will come. And if you tell a good story, people will buy it. I, I care about money, but I care about telling a good story first. More and sometimes if you put a pretty picture on the cover, <laughs> they'll buy it, it too. <laughs> That was hey, we're all visual. We're all visual. <laughs> okay. I, I, I just love that. All right. So moving on to the the Grace Harbor Mysteries, which yes. I got a sneak peek of people's <laughs> I'm blessed. Um, this is the first time. Now, are we just calling it mysteries? Are we possibly adding something to the front of that mystery? Well, here's the thing. Uh, Grace Harbor is not wholly my own. Um, Grace Harbor started off with a conversation I was having with a friend of mine who, um, who wrote a, a book called 300 Sandwiches, a wonderful book, uh, Stephanie Smith. She's a great author. And 300 Sandwiches was basically the story of how she met her husband. Um, she ended up uh, on Good Morning America and a whole bunch of these shows. And it was a very popular, it was her blog. But she wanted to write something on the fiction side to create. And I started off just by coaching her on how to create the background, the story, and the genesis of an idea. And from those conversations, we're like, well, maybe we should just write a book together. This seems to be something that we can both, you know, throw together. And so this is a bit of a departure for me. Um, and Stephanie did most of the work. I, I just sort of, you know, put the ideas into place. But... Um, the, the, the general idea is this is actually set in the late 70s and the early 80s, and it is urban fantasy, so you've got a lot of That's mystery elements in there. It, yeah. And yeah, but as far as the name goes, uh, this is also something that's uh, going to be with a, pub a mainstream publisher. So the final title, what it will be, I don't know at this point, because that's still up in the air. But yeah, the basis of the series will be the Grace Harbor Mysteries, and we'll probably you know put subtitles in there afterwards like the, urban the, fantasy or paranormal well the notion or... of 
the notion of uh, the Grace Harbor Mysteries was sort of like almost like a um, we picked an idea because uh, Charlene Harris has the Southern Vampire Mysteries, right? And I thought it would flow well off the tongue. And so each one of Charlene Harris's um, books in that series has an individual title, right? And I so I think what's going to happen is going to be it's called there. the Grace Harbor Mysteries and have a little you know title Eight, for the book. So that that will be the title of the series and. Um, Listen, everyone who's read it has loved it. Um, we have a good deal of interest from um, uh, mainstream publishers. We've gotten an agent, and they are shopping it around at the moment. But uh, it's, a, it's, it's a different type of book. It's interesting, and um, I enjoyed writing it. And so um, I was going to ask you, but I think I know the answer. Like In that situation where you're co-writing, you know, if there is a creative difference, how do you settle? How do you settle well, I, it? I, I win. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it sounds to me more like you're letting her take lead on this. Because well, here, here's the thing. Um, we're both reasonable people. Um, and I guess depending on, um, I, I know that there are authors who uh, get involved in, in co-writing situations that it ends up being a nightmare because there just isn't cooperation but we tend to think along the same path. So there haven't really been creative differences at this point. Uh, we, we did a series Bible, right? And we can see at least three books in the series. So we have a pretty good idea of where it's going. Uh, getting into a fight over the nitty gritty seems like a bit of a waste of time and energy. Yeah, no, um, no, you have to, but, especially if it's going to an editor. You're going to have to let go of some stuff anyway. Oh, absolutely. So, you, you know, yeah. uh, again, Stephen King says, kill your darlings. And I think that's what's going to happen. Um, you know, the book is pretty big at this point. Uh, and I think we're probably going to have to edit it down and take out some things here and there. But this, uh, this series uh, definitely, um, as far as um, ideas go, it definitely shows cultural differences. There's a lot of fun with culture here because it is set in Chicago uh, in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. There is some interesting cultural elements between, so for example, Grace herself is African-American and her partner throughout the series uh, is actually a, a Polish immigrant, right? Uh, who has some interesting personality quirks. Grace herself has some interesting personality quirks too, but uh, definitely uh, the police officer that she works with. Uh, but I like him. Fun. He's nice. Exactly. That's the thing. You know, he's, yeah, he's, you have... he's, he's one of those characters that says what's on his mind. He's not shy. Well, you know what? I almost think that um, in today, because we're fixing everybody's problems, right? If somebody has a speech problem or whatever, we just got to, we have to fix it. Yes. And that's messing with characters. Like growing up, I remember there was one um, mystery, and I can't think of it top of my head, but he wouldn't leave his house. He was a rich guy, and mm -hmm. he had all these people running to find his clues. But he <laughs> wouldn't leave his house. And it, that oh, wow. made for a lot. I'm trying to think it was on. That sounds it, really interesting. Yeah, but we, we wouldn't get him now, right? Because, no, no. because he would have to leave the house or be fixed. Um, you know, and there's all these little quirks that make. Well, there is Monk. I do like Monk. But there is all these little quirks that make a person a person. Yes. Uh, like you, you wouldn't be able to make Monk today. 
I'm sorry, you wouldn't. Uh, and and <laughs> there I are actually, but but that's just it. Sometimes, oh. sometimes. Brian says it's the Nero Wolf series, and he's right. Okay, it is Nero Wolf. Oh, okay. thank you, Brian. You're coming. You're always you're always so so good. Okay, we have a couple questions by Brian, so we'll just do that because he helped me out today, so I don't go around saying. No problem. <laughs> What's that? Um, in your formative years, however you define yourself as an author, were you influenced more by specific authors or specific genres? Um, definitely uh, specific genres. So I read anything and everything fantasy growing up. Um, I read all the big ones, obviously. And, and you know, uh, Robert Jordan also played a big role in uh his uh, Wheel of Time series was absolutely my favorite series of books ever written. And the notion of having rules in place of setting things up is actually uh, one of the core elements that he has in his writing as well. Um, he, Mr. Jordan unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, I love the Wheel of Time series and it, it really influenced me in a lot of different ways. Obviously things like Star Wars do have an influence and, you know, uh, the spiritual aspect of Star Wars, not necessarily the fighting and the sci-fi, but this notion, uh, again, of connection that definitely makes uh, uh, made me who I am as an author. Oh. <laughs> that makes sense. And I, I can see the Star Wars connection too because it's settling differences between co-authors might best be done through trial by combat. Example, baking muffins judged by spouses. <laughs> In, in, in Rhett's case, that would be cinnamon buns. And, <laughs> and then we go to the fact that it was the Nero Wolf series, and I will not have to be freaking out here anymore thinking, what's that series? I didn't imagine it. It was real. So It was so, real. It was real. <laughs> it was real. So, yes. So what we were saying is we have decided to perfect humanity, as it were. Unfortunately, yes. But the, the humans we love are usually the most flawed. Right. And and they have learned things because of those flaws. They've had yes. to walk out there in society and they've learned they're bigger than their flaws or that people aren't always kind, but they still are. Or, you know, they become well, me. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing uh, I heard recently, and it, and it really had a profound effect on me, is that there are people there are two types of people. There are people who will say nice things, but do mean things. And there are people who will say mean things, but do nice things, right? So be careful and, and, and judge people on their actions, not on what they say to you. you know? Exactly. It's very easy to say how people say how wonderful you are and how kind you are, and then you know walk away when you need help. Uh, whereas there are people who will tell you the truth and say some pretty horrible things, but when you need help, they'll be there to help you. So it's, it's always. Well, and sometimes those things are meant for, say, for example, Simon Cowell, who is hated by many, but he says that so people don't spend their time and their money getting yes. or something yes. that's not going to happen. So we, we, we have become a society that's um, not able to handle the truth. Uh, especially if it's told in a blunt way. But then right. that is where, yeah, yes. Well, I mean, the truth is blunt. Like, <laughs> you, can't, you can't 
sugarcoat everything with a little bit of cinnamon and make it. <laughs> we can try. We can I mean, try. There, there are nice ways to say things, obviously. Uh, not everything has to be told in a blunt manner, but sometimes that's what you need to hear. You need to be told things in a rough way to, uh, to actually accept them. Because if you try to sugarcoat it too often, people hear what they want to hear as opposed to the truth. And that makes that crusty old character. I think, yes. I think being a reader or a writer, like being a writer, you have to be observant of life. Yes. Right. Um, you know, absolutely. Don't have coffee beside me because I'm gonna pick something up and try it down. <laughs> right? Not in a bad way, but yeah, we're taking notes. And as a reader, we learn what's behind that. Like you're going back to tell Lilith's story. We yes. learn what's behind that crusty old, you know, um, sailor or whatever. And and so I think it it works on both ways in that. But yeah, there are nice ways to say things. Yes, like coffee so and a cinnamon bun. You know, um, uh, also, you know, uh, in, in the Grace Harbor series, um, we end up having to tell a, a fairly modern story, right? And it was interesting writing it because we are writing in the 70s and the 80s. So there are no cell phones. There are uh, very limited, you know, the technology we take for granted today uh, is just not there. We've had to use pay phones. People still read newspapers. So you get to actually be immersed in the culture and uh, the technology of the 70s and the 80s. Uh, I am <clears throat> old enough to remember those times. <laughs> and, you know. But not uh, really old enough to have lived in <laughs> Oh, <laughs> a little bit. Um, and, yeah, you know, you go ahead. Yeah, and, and so, you know, some of the, especially a lot of the vehicles, like I have a good memory for cars and what things look like and what they smell like. And so we get to put a lot of that in there and, and it makes for some interesting storytelling. Um, I, can, I can see with the cars because I actually felt like I was back then as a small child <laughs> and, um, and sitting in those cars and feeling it. Yes. And I was going to ask you that too, because, you know, it's not Rome. There are people no. that do remember that time. I mean, did you feel like you had to be more careful about Anorak? Well, here's the thing. The book is set in Chicago, and Stephanie is from Chicago. She grew oh, up in Chicago. So she knew. So, <laughs> she knew. She knew. So okay, that's where, that helps, too. <laughs> yeah, that's, that helps that she grew up in that city. She knows that city. She Her mom still lives there. And so uh, the visceral feel and smell and, you know, um, the beat of the place, right? Every every city has a certain heartbeat, uh, and and she knows the heartbeat of Chicago, and so oh, it, like it translated that. it translated really well into the story because we could talk about places, we could talk about diners, we could talk about uh, you know specific streets and what it's like walking down that street, right? And so that um, allows you to, to 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 immerse the reader in a place. You know, Anne Rice was famous for doing that with New Orleans, right? Uh, I read Anne Rice books, and when I actually went to New Orleans, I was like, "Wow, I feel like I've been here because I've read the you know books like this." And so that's one of the feelings we're trying to get uh, in. Well, um, in that needs to go on a back cover or something. Like Stephanie knows the heartbeat of Chicago. <laughs> well, put that in there. That's good. That's good. <laughs> you know, because she was growing up there. Because. I like that. <laughs> and yeah. and um, I'm going to have to interview Stephanie just so I get to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get her. I'll get her your number. 
Okay. And Brian, I'm not putting up, but Brian, it's, are you directing this at me, Brian? One can be blunt, but still respectful. <laughs> Always respectful, but no, it's true. It's, it's not, it's not a personal shot. It's a fact shot. I mean, I think that's what the confusion is. Facts, um, you know, if you carried something and dropped it, the fact is you dropped it. So it's exactly. not being like, no, I didn't drop it. But, you know, if someone's suggesting a better way to carry it, you can't get the suggestion without accepting the fact that you dropped it first. Exactly. It is. Okay. So I'm going to go. We have four more minutes left. And I'm, I told you it would go fast. It's not two hours anymore. I, it, it doesn't feel like it. Uh, not at all. <laughs> It just goes. Um, oh, I wanted to say, um, Endor, I'm not even a Star Wars fan. Or mm -hmm. do we say that, Endor? But I Endor. thought it was incredible. I thought it was the noir of Star Wars. Um, you know, it almost reminded me of like a spy movie, like a Cold War. Well, you know what? It, it's, it, it does something that, that hasn't been done in Star Wars, is it dug deep. So Star Wars is this giant iceberg, right? And George Lucas, when he created it, you know, we see the top of the iceberg. The top of the iceberg is the Skywalker saga. It's, you know, stormtroopers and yeah, lightsabers it's, it's, and it's Jedi. A, it's, a it, it's, it's, a it's, it's, a it's a beautiful thing. But the way that Star Wars is created is that you can imagine, your imagination takes you under the water to the massive part of the iceberg. And this is the first time we've gone under the water and seen the lower levels of Star Wars, how the regular people live, how Mr. Madame Tout le Monde, sorry, I'm French Canadian, um, <laughs> how uh, the everyday person lives and, and, and their struggles, um, the struggles that, that, that Cassian face, the struggles that Mon Mothma faces in this story are phenomenal. You know, and uh, the main character played by Stalin Stasgard that I think that's the role of his oh, well, career. Yeah, My God. I mean, but he's had so many roles of his career. He's such I a know, fantastic I, actor. You're pulling one, this one. One of my my friends said at the time when he saw that Stalin Sasgard was in the series, he says, "Oh, you know, he's a great bit actor, you know, and you know, but he can't. He <laughs> no, no. He literally said, well, he can't helm a series. He can't be the lead actor. I think in this series, he showed he could be a lead actor in a series." Because he was so brilliant in it. I, 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 I think so. He's incredible. And I want to say to the world at large, when I say I'm not a Star Wars fan, it, I, I live in a house with... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I live in a house where my basement is full of Star Wars <laughs> merchandise. So I like Star Wars. I consider it a movie but I don't like it as much as some other people in our house. So I, I just thought I'd better... Um, I'd better... I, I, to, to finish on the Star Wars note, my daughter, my wife and I have an argument. My wife does not like Star Wars. My wife is like you. She watches it because, you know, I happen to be around. Uh, she loves musicals. And we have this constant battle with our daughter where we're trying to convince her to follow what we love, our passion. <laughs> So I'm trying to convince my yeah, daughter to love Star Wars, and my wife is trying to convince her to love musicals. So far, my wife is winning, but yeah. you know, I'm holding out. Well, I'm she's holding got out Disney hope. Disney on her side, right? So it's kind she of has easy. Disney on her side. And, you know, Adele watched Grease and she loved it. Uh, she watched the new Matilda musical and she loved it. I'm just watching, like, no, I'm going to lose this fight. <laughs> Um, 
you never know, though. They change a lot. And... They change a lot. I'm holding out hope for puberty, and you know, yeah. she, she she watched she watched a fight scene between Anakin and Obi Wan, and she liked that, right? And she was quoting it for a week as a meme. But that's the best I've gotten so far. Well, and it depends on what's in when it comes her time, you know, because you can't force them to love what we no, love, right? No, and can't. it's a different time. And on that note, I'm going to have to say goodbye, Rhett, but you'll need to come back again because I will. I can't even remember what we talked about. I, I'm not re-listening to this because <laughs> I don't know what well, when, uh, <laughs> I, I, Like I said, I, I, I should have about three books coming out this year. Uh, between the Last Witch of Rome and Grace Harbor, and so I'll definitely come back on to you know let everybody know that they're they're out there and they're ready to be enjoyed. So uh, I thank you so much for having me. It's been a oh no, it's, it's been always fun. like the time really does fly when I talk to you. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> so uh, I had a great time, and I'm going to be in a good mood for the rest of the day now. <laughs> oh, good, good. <laughs> okay, all right. You take care, and we will talk to you later. Okay. Okay. Thank bye. -bye. You. Okay, well, that was fun. Next week, our guest will be Janice J. Richardson. She is the author of the Spencer Funeral Home Cozy Mystery Series. She also has a standalone literary novel called Fading Expectations about us two mothers and their special needs children, which is, um, is a great, great read. And she has a new series coming out as well, which she can talk more about. Um, until then, and may your coffee be hot and your stories sweet. Thank you for listening, everyone, and have a good week. Mm -hmm.